We're continuing our study of Jacob's life. And I want you to know before I read this that this is a story about sexual abuse. I want you to know that this story is deeply grievous. And I want you to know that this is an opportunity for you to know that there are women who serve with the diaconate who would want to hear from you. That there are other women in the church, in leadership, who would love to sit with you and pray with you. This is a difficult story. But it's a story that we need. And it is a story in which the context will surprise you how it has to do with Jesus. We're going to continue reading from Genesis 34. I'm going to read the whole chapter. This chapter can be found on page 28 of those Blue Pew Bibles. Genesis 34 Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. 
Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son, Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamar, his son, so Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give, let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city." On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and they plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we come before you and before your word, and we are made starkly aware of the brokenness of this world. Father, we praise you and thank you that you recognize the brokenness and that you speak decisively and definitively without doubt how our sin has led to outrageous acts that must not be done. Father, we draw near to you, understanding that as we draw near, there are sisters in our presence. Father, who need to know that you are present and that you know Father, we come to you and we beg you. Would you help us? Would you show us 
your hand and your work and your might and your restoration and your promises. Father, we pray that as we come to this text, you would show us Christ. Father, we recognize that your name is not even written in these words. And yet this chapter is in your word for us. Father, would you please show us what you would have for us to see? Would you please show us the sinfulness of sin? But would you also remind us what you have done about it? Even as we stand in the presence of these candles, love, peace, and joy, hope. Father, we come to you as broken and needy men and women. And we ask you, will you show us your intention of bringing peace and of making all things rightly related. We thank you and we praise you in advance for what you will do. And it's in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. We have continued on through this book of Jacob. And one of the themes of Jacob has been this whole idea of Jacob being changed. Not just as his name changed from Jacob to Israel, but we see his sanctification take place over time. And we have seen that Jacob's life is up and down and up and down. The verses that come right before what we just read says that, sa- that Jacob had actually come safely to this city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, which was on his way back from his uncle Laban in Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And it says that he actually bought some of the land from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father. He bought the land for a hundred pieces of silver, and the land where he was, he pitched his tent. There he erected an altar, there in that city of Shechem, The problem is, if you remember, he was supposed to travel to Bethel. He was supposed to go to Bethel and erect an altar there and worship God there. But Jacob is a broken man. Jacob was lax in his obedience. Jacob was lax in taking the sin seriously in the land that was around him. There are two realities that we need to address in this text. The first reality is the definition of what an an outrageous act is. And the second is the response to that act. Unlike Stories where there are heroes, there are no heroes in this story. 
And it's all the more reason that we ought to pay attention to this story to see how God reacts, that God might work in us that we would react the same. The first thing that we need to consider was that an outrageous act took place. The text starts very quickly. And in the first two verses, you see what happened to Dinah. We are told that Shechem, the son of Hamor, saw her, seized her, lay with her, and humiliated her. Each of the verbs intensify the event of a rape of Dinah. The question is, why is this outrageous? And I want to say that our understanding of sexual immorality is so askewed that we need to ask that question even as we come to this text. I wanted to sharpen my understanding of where the word outrageous came from. And so I did, what do you do? Google search, right? So you want to study a little bit about the Latin and the Old English and where the word comes from. Well, the first thing that popped up into my mind won't be new to many of you. You know I've got a soft spot for Taylor Swift, but this was outrageous by Britney Spears. And I don't know if you've ever looked at that song but it is a definition of our confusion about what is outrageous. Because we more, more, more sharply use the language of outrageous as morally outrageous. Something that is excessively bad and over the top, right? This phrase is often attributed to Confucius, that the beginning of wisdom is to call a thing according to its proper name. And in verse 7, we see that the sons of Jacob have come in from the field as soon as they heard of the event that had occurred, and they were indignant, which means grieved and troubled, and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. And then as if we didn't understand that it was outrageous, it says, for such a thing must not be done. This idea of this event of Dinah's rape being an outrageous thing. It is outrageous not in the sense that there is weakness in reason, but it is in the sense that there is an insensibility of the moral and the religious relations that are connected to this sexual abuse. This outrageous thing, as one commentator said, is rooted in an incapacity to discern the moral and the religious relations of the act. 
that results in this sense of an intolerant repudiation to practice the claims which this act offend. Listen, our gender, being male and female, is defined by being image bearers of God. And then this act of sex symbolizes the unity that results when a man and a woman come together in the bond of marriage. The amazing thing is that this act causes us to wonder from the beginning what is morally required because of sex and what are the religious implications in our own lives? Nathan and I have been telling you that we've been in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Advent devotional. And one of the things that Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that I loved this week was that God travels wonderful ways with human beings, but he does not comply with the views and opinions of people. God does not go the way that people want to prescribe for him. And our understanding of sex is one of those ways in which God does not go with us in what we may want. But God defines as creator what sex is for. Sex, the giving of oneself, the receiving of another, and the unity that exists between two becoming one in the bonds of marriage Sex is celebrated in Scripture. It is morally good and right. There is an entire book of the Bible about sex in Scripture. The Song of Solomon. An amazing story. But here in this section, we actually see how Shechem thinks about sex. He saw he seized and he violated. What does that sound like to you? Does it ring like the garden at all? Adam and Eve saw the fruit. They seized the fruit and they ate it. This outrageous thing is not just a missing of what it is for morally, the giving of oneself and the receiving of another. What it is religiously symbolizing the unity of two becoming one flesh. But as another commentator said, it is a criminally irresponsible act that has both social and personal disintegration at its core. The society disintegrates, but the person disintegrates as well. Who thinks about this idea of sex as seeing and as seizing and as consuming. 
Why do we need to think about this clearly? Because the same things could be said about pornography and the use of pornography, couldn't it? Stop for a minute. Instead of distancing ourselves from the text, why don't we draw nearer to it and allow it to, detine, to, to talk to us about our understanding of sex? Pornography, seeing something, seeing it and consuming it for me. This is true about sexual immorality in general, isn't it? Even when we say it's consensual outside of the marriage bond, it is still saying, I'm going to see something, I'm going to seize it, and I'm going to consume it for me. This story is the ultimate end of this because it is the rape of someone against their will, but the root of the understanding, the lie of the evil gardener is at the, is at the base of all sexual immorality. Another commentator said it like this, for society's self-protection, such atrocities can never be tolerated or go unpunished. Think about this. The idea of being addicted to pornography and using other human beings for your own good disintegrates you. The idea of sexual immorality rampant in a community disintegrates the community. That's what's being addressed here. That's the weight of this. And this cannot go unaddressed. As this one commentator said, such atrocities can never be tolerated and go unpunished. But on what grounds is this story so outrageous? Is it because it violated another human being's will? You say, look, I'm a human being. If I will to do something and somebody else wills to do something, what is that to you? Is it outrageous on the grounds of human will against Dinah? Or is it first outrageous because it's against God's will, the creator of sex, who in Viewed it with both moral and religious import that in this outrageous act, all of us can say it's completely wrong. Listen, your reaction to this sexual ethic of see and seize and consume this lie that was embedded into the hearts of humanity in the disobedience in the garden will help you answer the question, who do I think is offended in this? 
And it will also help you with the one other thing that I want you to think about, which is the reaction. We're given three reactions in this story, right? The possible reactions to sexual immorality. And in this case, sexual immorality that offends to this, to this height and degree of overcoming one's individual will, this sexual immorality that has at the heart of it the, the lie of the garden. I see what I want, I seize it, and I consume it. The first is you have the Canaanite response to it, right? What does Shechem tell his dad? You can go back and read it and see it as well. In verse 4, he says, get me that girl to be my wife. That's what he says to her. In 8 through 12, both Hamar and Shechem go to Jacob and to, his, and to Dinah's brothers, and they say to them, hey, let's make a deal. And then after a deal is struck, they go to the men of their own city in verses 18 through 24, and they convince them, look, this is a really good deal. But at core, the response of the Canaanites is, look, let's just get what we or what I or what you want or what you desire. Sex is going to be a means of commerce for us. And in this Canaanite way, to see and to seize and to consume becomes normalized. Especially when you see their argumentation with Jacob and his brothers. Especially when we think of sex as consensual outside of marriage. You take yours and I'll take mine is the Canaanite principle, is the principle that Jacob drew near to, pitched his tent next to, invited his family to walk among. There's another response that is equally as haunting, and it's Jacob's response. There are only two places in this whole thing that Jacob's even mentioned. Verse 5, we're told that Jacob hears what happens and he holds his peace. He doesn't say anything. And we're told he doesn't say anything because his sons are out in the field. Jacob could have very well gone to his sons. Jacob could have very well responded in another way. We're told that Hamar and Shechem come to Jacob and to Jacob's sons and they try to cut the deal about getting Shechem, Dinah. Jacob doesn't say anything. You might be led to believe that Jacob thinks that his sons have made a pretty good decision and let's go along with that. And it's not until verse 30, after this atrocity of the destruction of this entire city, that we hear what Jacob really thinks. Jacob says this in verse 30, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. What is Jacob thinking about? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? 
The word is repeated almost 10 times. There is a fearful, self-centered silence in the presence of a sexual norm that destroys the moral and the religious power that God has imbued into sex. Jacob says, if I speak up, what will happen to me? There's a third response, isn't there? The third response is the response that takes the majority of the chapter. It's the response of Dinah's brothers. And I wonder how many of us lean in when we hear their response and go, yes. I don't know if you guys are watching Yellowstone. I don't know if we ought to watch Yellowstone. This week's been a tough week in this passage and go, should we watch something that's as violent as that show? But when I read this passage, all I could think about was the Dutton family out in Montana and how violently they respond to pressure against them. And here are these brothers in verse 7. Listen to what they did. The sons of Jacob, they came in from the field as soon as they heard it, and they were indignant. Do you know what that means? It means deeply grieved. Deeply grieved is what it means. And they were very angry because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing must not be done. And finally you go, somebody responded the right way. Jacob didn't, but finally the brothers have. Right? But then listen to where they take their grief and their anger. Verse 13, and I won't read all the way through 13 to 17. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully. Their intent was to crush them. They made the bet with them or they made the deal with them. Look, we can't give you our daughter. If we give you our daughter and you're uncircumcised, you're not part of the people of God. And if you're not part of the people of God, that will be horrific for us. So only on the intent that you get circumcised will we give you Dinah. And they go back, Hamar and Shechem think this is a great idea. And so they convince all of their people to get circumcised, all the men of their community, everyone that goes in and out of the gates. It means there's not an adult male that wasn't. And while they were covering, while they were wounded, while they were, you know, laid up, Simeon and Levi go through and they murder every man in the city. And then Jacob's sons go through and they plunder the city. They take everything of any value, including what? The women and the children of the place. They don't have a different sexual ethic. They are driven by their unrighteous retaliation, by their self-righteous condemnation, by their move for retribution, so much so that they would even take the covenant sign of God's blessing on them and use it to deceive others. There is merciless punishment in their response. Listen, if there's ever a book of the Bible that would remind you that among human beings, there is no way that we can save ourselves. This would be a great chapter 
to start in. There is no hero in this text. There is simply the reality of where we have come and our view of sex in the world that is morally and religiously vacuous because we have said from pornography to sexual immorality and all the way to this horrific situation of rape. I see, I seize, I consume. What is your view toward the evil gardener's direction to us? See, seize, consume. We read a passage like this and we go, is there any possibility for peace? Commentators make a big deal of the reality that God is not mentioned in this chapter. And not by accident, but with the sense that without God's hope, we are helpless. So maybe we should ask the question, how does God respond to the evil gardener's pattern of seeing, seizing, and consuming? The first thing that I want you to see is the reason that the brothers resonate with you is because they're deeply grieved. I said that the brothers were grieved and I explained indignation to you and you want to know what many of your heads did? You're like, yep. And I want you to see that God's response to sexual immorality is deep grieving. How do I know this? Go look up Genesis chapter 6, right before the flood that it was the sexual immorality that grieved God to his core that said, this is it. I'm taking Noah and I'm destroying the rest. God is grieved by what we have done with sex that he imbued with such moral and religious import. But we know again that God has said there will never be a flood. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is he going to do? God grieves. But the amazing thing is that God makes his presence known. In the very next verse, God speaks in chapter 35. But he didn't just speak his presence. We celebrate Christmas because Jesus became a man. God took on flesh. He came. Do you remember where Jesus made himself first known as the Savior? The one who would save us from our sins. Do you remember where it was, where he made himself first known in the book of John? Do you remember? Think about this for a minute. Think about it. It was beside a well Do you remember to whom it was? 
to, to a Samaritan woman. Do you remember what she said about that well? This is the well that our father Jacob gave to us. You guys, that well was this location. The location of this horrific atrocity is where Jesus revealed himself to a woman whose cultural sexual norms had destroyed her. Do you remember the conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well? How many times that she had been married and the man that she was with now was not even her husband? Jesus reveals himself as God's means of salvation. He says, I am he, I am the Messiah. Bonhoeffer writes, where reason is indignant and where our natures rebel, where our piety anxiously keeps us away, that is precisely where God loves to be. And that is the wonder of all wonders of the incarnation. That God loves the lowly. God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in to the place where we have taken what has such moral and religious import and he marches right in there. He chooses people as his instruments and he performs his wonders where one would least expect them. God is near the lowliest. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak, and the broken. This is our God who saw our estate and came to us. But it's not just that he came to us, it's how that you need to hear. Because his posture toward us is unbelievable. Do you remember when the woman was caught in adultery? Do you remember they drug her into Christ's presence? You know as well as I do that in the book of John, that chapter has brackets around it and says there's some parts of Scripture, there are some transcripts of Scripture that include this and some that don't. But let me tell you, if Psalm 103 is true and it says that God does not deal with us according to our sins, we ought to at least consider that this is exactly how Jesus would do it if he didn't. But they brought her to him and they said she was caught in adultery. And what does Jesus do? Jesus stoops to the ground and writes in the dirt. When is the last place in Scripture that God's hand was in the dirt? And it's when he created you, human being, in his image. 
And in Jesus' humble gentleness, he shows her mercy. Wait a minute, when did she repent? Before this, right? No, no, no. Don't get these out of control. Don't get these out of order. Jesus looks up at her from riding in the dirt, and he had said one thing, those among you who have no sin, go ahead, cast the first stone. And what does the story tell us? It says that they begin to leave. Who? They begin to leave from the oldest among them to the youngest. And Jesus looks up at this woman and he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He doesn't deny the sin of sexual immorality. He calls it what it is, but he says, neither do I condemn you. And you go, wait a minute, that's the point right there. How is this not Jesus being permissive? How is he not being permissive here? Why can't we just be permissive as Jesus is being permissive? Because it's not just that Jesus grieves. It's not just that God makes his presence with us. It's not just his posture toward us, but it's the price that he paid for our sins. Shechem looked at Jacob and the brothers and he said, you name the bride price. I'll pay whatever it is as a price and a gift. You ask, I'll give it to you. Shechem could not pay the bride price. He couldn't undo what he had done. He could not do it. But Jesus does. Full stop. Full stop. Because Jesus bears our guilt. Listen to what Bonhoeffer says one more time. In an incomprehensible reversal of all righteous and pious thinking, God declares himself guilty to the world and thereby extinguishes the guilt of the world. Now there is no more reality and no more world that is not reconciled with God and in peace. That is what God did in his beloved son, Jesus Christ. See the incarnate God, the unfathomable mystery of the love of God for the world. God loves human beings. God loves the world, not ideal human beings, but people as they are, not an ideal world, but the real world. What is God's response to our brokenness? And especially in this passage, sexual immorality and even the height of that, if it's able to be said, in the rape of Dinah. It is deep grief. Deep grief. But it is presence. And it is a posture of humble mercy. And he pays the price. 
so that when we sinners repent, there might be celebration. Celebration. Can you believe that? The scriptures say that when a sinner repents, the angels in heaven rejoice. The story of the two sons is that the prodigal father sees his son from far off and runs to him and falls on his neck and throws the celebration at the repentance of his son. You guys, there's such hope for us in a text like this. And the reason there is such hope is because we are beyond hope. (laughs) But the God who created us and imbued in the act of sex such moral and religious import moves toward us even in our brokenness here. Please don't let me, don't think that we have said that this should go unpunished. This is such an atrocity that societies don't continue on with that not being punished. But let's let it sit into the depth of our hearts and help us understand our need so that when we come to this table, we're not coming for somebody else, but we're coming for ourselves. Will you pray with me?